0: Good morning. Uh, I know that there's a lot of visitors here this morning due to the baby dedication. Uh, We welcome you guys. We're so pleased that you're here worshiping with us this morning. Uh, We have been working through for the last number of weeks a series in the book of 1 Peter, and that is where we will be continuing here this morning. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 8 through the beginning of verse 18. And what Peter has really been addressing over the last couple weeks is with this identity, this rich identity that we have in Christ, being in this world but not identified by the world, how are we to live uh, in the midst of these different social spheres that we find ourselves in? So when we're experiencing mistreatment, persecution uh, from the government, how ought we to respond to them? Uh, He also mentioned uh, employers and employees. Uh, If we're being mistreated by our employer as an employee, how ought we to respond to our employer? And uh, Peter struck a note there of submission, and then he brought that into the family and into the household with wives and husbands as we saw last week and, and, and the way that that fleshed itself out. Now those are very specific, -specific, context-specific instances that Peter was talking about. And now as we turn to the second half of chapter 3, Peter really generalizes his teaching on Christian suffering and how we ought to respond to those who persecute us. So he has in mind here everyone. Uh, This applies to every single one of you. You don't have to be married for this to apply to you. You don't have to have a job for this to apply to you. This is the way you should respond to those who persecute you, who mistreat you for your faith in and out of every single day throughout the course of everyday life. And so let me ask a couple questions just to frame uh, the message this morning and the way that we need to be um, directing our minds here as we begin. What is the calling of the Christian as it pertains to persecution? Persecution as it pertains to suffering for our faith, what is our calling? What ought we to do in those instances? When people mock us because of what we believe, how should we speak to them and about them? What should be on our lips? When people slander our reputation in the workplace because of our faith, how should we relate to them? When people mistreat us verbally, emotionally, Physically, in our schools, or in our families, because we follow Christ, how should we respond to those people? This is what Peter labors here to take up for us and give us an answer to. Uh, He seeks to encourage us in the midst of our suffering for the cause of Christ and to equip us to respond appropriately to that suffering. Uh, And you'll see if you have a bulletin insert, I have that outlined for you that that is Peter's aim, to encourage us in the midst of our suffering and to equip us to respond to it appropriately. And we're gonna see this in a couple different ways. Uh, First, in verses eight and nine, we're gonna see that we are actually called to bless those who curse us. Um, And then Peter elaborates on this life of blessing that we are called to, and also the blessing of the Lord that rests upon us as we're living this life. And then uh, lastly, he shows us what our response should be to a very specific response to the, those who persecute us and those who ask us about our faith in the midst of our persecution. So I'm going to go ahead and read the text, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through the beginning of 18. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. When you are slandered, uh, when, when those who slander you and revile your good behavior in Christ, that they may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the way that you are unfolding and framing for us how we ought to view uh, suffering for your sake, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the glory of your son. Help us to be willing to submit to the truth we see here. Mold and shape us as we look into your truth this morning. Pray this all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So Peter begins by uh, telling us that we are called to a life of blessing in the midst of the cursing that we receive for our faith. And he, as I said, he generalizes this to every single Christian. This applies to all of you. In verse 8 he says, finally, all of you. Uh, no more context specific in terms of those social spheres. This applies to every single Christian every single follower of Christ and in verse 8 he actually adds in a little bit about how we ought to treat each other in the midst of the covenant community in the midst of the church Um, we're not going to address that in depth here I'd I'd rather like to focus on uh, Peter's primary focus which is how are we to treat those on the outside and that's what he turns to in verse 9 He says, do not repay evil for evil or slander for slander, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And so Peter says that in relation to those who treat us uh, wickedly, that is with their lips or with their actions, we ought to uh, bite our tongues in return. Uh, We ought to not respond with evil for evil or slander for slander. We ought to not treat them poorly or speak about them ill with ill will. But that is only the first half of what Peter tells us to do. And that's really hard enough, isn't it? It's hard enough because everything inside of us, our sinful nature says that I want to retaliate. I want to repay them for what they've done wrong to me. That's a sinful, a natural inclination of our hearts. But Peter says, no, that's not what we're called to as Christians. But he doesn't so much say that we're simply called to not say anything, but rather in the midst of that persecution, in the midst of that slander, in the midst of that evil, we are to instead bless those who curse us. Now that has to be a supernatural act of the spirit within us because that just that just doesn't happen. That's not on our hearts, that's not on our minds. When we receive mistreatment for our faith, the first thing we think of is not man, how can I bless this person? Unless the spirit of God is working within us. But indeed, this is what he says. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, Return blessing for cursing. So what does it mean to bless those who curse us? A pastor, John Brown, who's been in the grave quite a while now, uh, comments on this verse and he says this. It is the duty of the Christian to render benefit for injury, blessing for railing. He is to do whatever lies in his power to promote his persecutors' real welfare to go out of his way to do them a service, and not satisfied with his own efforts to advance their happiness, he is to call upon the aid of infinite power and wisdom and kindness by the prayer which has power with God. Simply put, what it means to bless those who curse us is to seek to do good to them through action and through prayer, through petitioning God for them, for their good. That is what it means to bless those who curse us. And Peter puts it so strongly here. This isn't something that he's just suggesting that we do as Christians, like it's a good thing if you do this, but you don't really have to do it. He uses a very strong word to identify this as one of the purposes for which we exist as Christians in this world. He says, for to this you were called for to this you were called this is one of god's primary purposes for us as christian exiles in a world that is hostile to christ is that when we receive persecution for following christ we are called to return blessing and not evil peter goes on to say uh, that uh, as we do this that we will obtain a blessing, and rather, uh, rather than saying that this actually earns us a blessing, what Peter is saying is that um, by doing this, by returning blessing for evil, we show that we possess the blessing of God. We show that we have that identity in Christ, that we are his people when we are committed to blessing in the midst of the cursing that we receive. And this blessing that he talks about us obtaining has both a present reality and a future reality, which we will get to in just a moment. But Peter, having now introduced the life of blessing to us that we are called to, and the Christian's inheritance, uh, which is a blessing, which we'll define shortly, he now expands on both of these thoughts to encourage us, to encourage those who are suffering for their faith, and to root us in a rich understanding of blessing and suffering and how they relate in our everyday lives. And he does this by quoting Psalm 34, and this begins in verse 10. He says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So this is an unfolding of the life of blessing that we're called to. Peter is using this scripture to um, support what he has just said. Bless rather than curse. Bless in the midst of cursing. And then this psalm helps to support that and outline what it actually looks like. But at the beginning of the psalm, he says that whoever desires to love life and to see good days... That's where where the psalm begins here in Peter's quotation of it. So these good days are something that we are to be desiring and pursuing. The question that came to my mind as I was studying this is, what does the psalmist and Peter define as good days? What are those good days that we ought to be desiring? I think that he defines good days in relation to the blessing that we receive from God, which we'll deal with in a moment. We will come back to that question. But he says that those who desire to see these good days should live this life of blessing. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And remember, this is in the context, not just generally speaking, but the specific context of when we receive persecution for our faith, when we're mistreated because we are Christians. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. When you are mistreated for your faith, what words are on your lips regarding the person that has mistreated you? Is it slander, hatred, and cursing? Is that what's on your tongue? Or do you speak of them graciously, seeking to bless them rather than curse them? Secondly, he says, let him turn away from evil and do good. When you are mistreated for your faith, how do you act regarding the person that has mistreated you? We see what we do with our lips in the first instance and what we do with our actions in the second. Do you plan ways to retaliate? Are you seeking evil for them? Or do you plan ways to bless them and do good to them, both in action and in prayer? And Peter brings this all together in that we should seek peace and pursue it. Keeping our tongue and actions pure in relation to those who mistreat us for our faith will promote peace in our relationships with them. And that is what we're called to as Christians. This life of blessing in the midst of the cursing that we receive. And now Peter turns to address the blessing of the Lord that is on those who who practice this way of life, and who are his people. He first starts with the present blessing of the Lord in verse 12, and then in 13 and 14, he talks about the future blessing that we will receive. So first, the present blessing. He says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. The blessing of the Lord that is upon his people in the midst of their persecution is one of his care and concern and his protection over us. That's what it means for the eyes of the Lord to be on his people. He is concerned about them. He is watching them. He's caring for them, protecting them. And perhaps most importantly, we have his ear in prayer. God listens to the prayers of, of his people, most assuredly when we are suffering for his sake. Charles Spurgeon says this about this, uh, this psalm here. He says, he observes them, that is God observes his people with approval and tender consideration. They are so dear to him that he cannot take his eyes off of them. He watches them as carefully and intently as if they were the only creature in the universe. His eyes and ears are thus both turned by the Lord toward his saints. His whole mind is occupied about them. If slighted by all others, they are not neglected by him. Their cry may be broken, plaintive, unhappy, feeble, unbelieving, yet the father's quick ear catches each note of lament and appeal, and he is not slow to answer his children's voice. I think that's a beautiful way to summarize that the Lord's eyes are on and his ears are open to those who have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus and who walk in that righteousness, who walk in that life of blessing that he has just said. This is the present blessing of the Lord that in the midst of our persecution here and now in this life, he is protecting us And his ear is open to us and our cries to him. Peter now comes away from the psalm. The psalm's quote is now over and he moves into an implication of that, which he points to the future blessing now that Christians can anticipate. He says, now who is there to harm you, in verse 13, if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So in verse 13, he asks here a rhetorical question. He says, who is there to harm you? And he has in mind here, ultimately speaking, of course we can be harmed in this life, right? But who is there to harm you, ultimately speaking, if you are zealous for what is good, if you are God's child, if you are living this life of blessing, who is there to harm you? The answer is no one. No one can take away that inheritance. No one can take away that eternal blessing of eternal life with God from us. Nobody can take it away. There is no one to harm you, ultimately speaking, if you are God's child. He continues. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And this is the focus on that eternal blessing, that eternal inheritance that we will receive as Christians. He's basically almost quoting verbatim what Jesus says in, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs, their what? Their blessing is the kingdom of God. Those who suffer for the sake of righteousness have this inheritance laid up for them, this eternal inheritance of eternal life with God and you see what Peter is doing here is he's taking these truths and embedding them in our hearts to encourage us in the midst of our suffering saying that when you suffer here and now in this life firstly you have the protection of God you have his ear he will listen to your prayers and secondly even if you should suffer in this life they cannot take away your eternal inheritance He's encouraging them to continue to suffer well for Christ in this life. That's what he's encouraging us to as well. Now I return to the question I asked you about, what does it mean to uh, seek good days or to desire good days? This is very crucial to our understanding of God's blessing on us and the suffering that we endure for his name's sake. We need to get this straight. We need to understand what the Bible says here. So how does Paul or Peter and the psalmist define these good days that we are to be seeking? You know, I think that most of the time, we envision that those good days that we're seeking is to walk in and out of our everyday lives and not experience persecution for our faith at all. We don't want to suffer for our faith. We don't want to suffer at all. And so I think that when we just read over this, We kind of think good days are when we don't suffer at all. That's what defines a good day. But that's not the way the psalmist and Peter define the good days that we ought to desire and that we ought to seek. Rather, they define these good days that we ought to desire as receiving the blessing of the Lord, both present blessing and future blessing. And that is not the complete, that is not the deliverance of being persecuted today or tomorrow. That is God's care and protection over us in the midst of that suffering that we experience. And we also know that we will be eternally delivered as we go to heaven at the end of our lives. You see, on the one hand, We desire not to suffer at all when we define good days as getting out of suffering for Christ. But that's not what Christ wants. He wants us to suffer well for him. And those good days are the days that we know that we are experiencing his blessing of his care over us in the midst of our suffering. Not going the day without suffering. So the one seeks to suffer well for Christ faithfully, knowing that he is caring for you, and the other seeks to get out of suffering for Christ. We must seek and desire the good days of suffering for Christ and knowing that he is there for us in the midst of it. So Peter has shown us what living a life of blessing our enemies looks like, and he has also given us a rich understanding of the present blessing of the Lord and the future blessing of the Lord, that should shape our understanding of suffering for Christ and actually give us strength and courage to do so. And now he turns to his response to suffering, a very pointed response to those who persecute us for our faith. In the second half of verse 14 through 16, he says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So I want to help you understand the structure here and then unfold it for you. So he gives two responses to suffering, uh, to, to the persecution that we experience. The first is, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. The second is, always be prepared to make a defense for your faith. But in between those two responses, he includes this clause, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And we need to understand what that phrase means because it lays the foundation for both of our responses, the first response which comes before it and the second response which comes after it. So let us consider first what it means to honor Christ the Lord in our hearts as holy and then we'll see how it influences both of our responses to persecution. So to honor Christ the Lord in our hearts as holy means to reverence him as our Lord above anyone else. And uh, the key thing that you need to grab onto here is Lord. What does it mean for Christ to be Lord and to be set apart as Lord in our hearts? I think this has two facets to it. So firstly, to reverence him in our hearts as Lord means to trust him knowing that he is Lord not only over us, but also over our persecutors and the the situation of suffering that we find ourselves in. His lordship being his sovereign reign over all things. And then the second way is to, uh, let me just repeat it here, to reverence him in our hearts means to trust him firstly for our situation we find ourselves in, and to above all else seek to submit to him as the one who is our king. So there's two facets, there's a facet of trust, knowing that he is above all and in control of all, and the second facet is our desire to please him in everything because he is our Lord. So honoring Christ in your hearts as Lord, uh, setting him apart in your hearts as Lord in relation to suffering, is the process of submitting the persecution you are facing to him and seeking his will for your response to it. And so understanding that, we now come to the first response, which Peter says in 14b, he says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And what Peter does here is he addresses one of the primary temptations we have when we suffer for our faith. Probably for most of us, the first temptation that we experience is to recoil, to fold under the pressure of the persecution, to no longer be public about our faith, to no longer talk about Jesus openly, uh, wherever we're experiencing this persecution, but to just zip our lips and be quiet, to fall back in fear. Uh, I think about um, my son who uh, had one, at one point touched a very hot pan, right, right? Uh, We tell him not to touch it, but he he touches it anyways. What happens when you touch that hot pan? You pull your hand back, you recoil, and you say, Ouch, that hurt. I'm never going to do that again. And that's the exact temptation that we have in relation to persecution. Ouch, that hurt. I'm no longer going to be public about my faith, I'm no longer going to speak about Jesus in a place where I know I could receive persecution. I'm going to fear them and I'm going to fall back in the midst of that fear. So the first response that he gives is have no fear of them nor be troubled. So how does setting Christ apart in our hearts as Lord influence and give us this courage to not fear them? Well, by trusting that Christ is indeed Lord, as I said, not only over you but over your persecutor, over the situation of persecution that you find yourself in, this will give you the courage to not be silent. It will give you the courage to not fall back in fear, but to continue to live in light of your faith and speak about Jesus openly. And this setting Christ apart in our hearts as Lord is a process that we go through. Peter here is talking about a type of persecution that we experience day in and day out. When you go to work and you get ridiculed for your faith and you come home and you have time to process that, man, what am I going to do in relation to this person who is mistreating me for my faith? And then you go into this process of setting Christ apart in your heart as Lord And seeking his will for the way that you should respond to this person. So this is a process that we're working through as we experience this persecution. It's not just something that we do and it's done. It's a continual process in our hearts. So not only will we have courage not to fall back, but as we honor Christ in our hearts as Lord, we will also be prepared to make an appropriate defense for our faith which is the second response to suffering. And the temptation we face here is to lash out against the people who, we have, who, who have mistreated us. Peter has already addressed that. Do not return evil for evil or slander for slander. He tells us that because that's the natural desire of our hearts, to seek retribution, to seek to retaliate against them. So how does honoring Christ in our hearts as Lord shift that desire in us and change that, that we might be a blessing rather than curse those who persecute us. Well, that brings in the second facet of Christ's lordship, the fact that we desire to please him above anyone else. And as we work that into our hearts, we're saying, God, I really want to honor and glorify you in the way I respond to this persecution. And as we do that, we're gonna realize that the right answer is not to respond with retaliation, but to bless rather than to curse them. Peter lays out specifically what that looks like. He tells us what we are defending and how we are to defend it. He says that we are to to defend, be ready to give a reason for what? For the hope that is in you. Let, let Let me show you how this works. So, when we suffer faithfully for Christ, when we suffer for Him well, not returning evil for evil, but returning blessing for evil, that gets the attention of not only our persecutor, but all those who see us enduring that persecution. And they naturally will come to us and say, Why don't you respond like everybody else? Why don't you respond like Jerry did? You know, why, why didn't you hit this guy upside the head? Why didn't you retaliate? Why aren't you gossiping about this person? They're going to wonder why we aren't reacting like the world reacts. And then we will have the opportunity to supplement our actions with the words of the gospel. And we'll be able to give them a reason for the hope that is in us for the hope of eternal life, for the hope of, of Christ and the gospel we will have that opportunity as we suffer well for Christ. And when we get that opportunity, we are to defend our faith with gentleness and respect and with a good or clear conscience. We ought to defend it with gentleness and respect, setting Christ apart in our hearts as Lord, where we're sincerely desiring these people's salvation and so we don't fly off, fly off the handle and say, oh, well, Jesus is just better or whatever. We, we approach it with gentleness and respect, earnestly seeking these people's salvation, that they may be one to Christ. And what Peter means by doing this with a clear conscience or a good conscience is that our works, uh, the good deeds that we do to them, the way that we live and our actions in light of them of the persecution and the words that we say to them should match up, should match up. We can't be mistreating them and then go and tell them the gospel. We can't do that with a clear conscience. But when they match up, we do this with a clear conscience. We do it with pure motivations. And when we do that, they have no charge to bring against us. But they are left speechless in the sight of somebody who suffers faithfully for Christ, and who supplements that with the truth of the gospel as they give it to them. This is not easy to do. Uh, And I'm sure that you probably feel the weight of this, and I'm sure that you probably feel uh, your failure in this, because we all fail at this. What Peter is talking about here is extremely difficult. And without the power of the Spirit, I say it's impossible. But I think that what we need to understand, more than anything, is the purpose for it, is the reason that God wants us to suffer for his namesake. Because I think that without a purpose, without knowing what this ultimately benefits, we're just not gonna do it. We just won't go there. But I think that if we can work into our hearts the true purpose for why God allows us to suffer for our faith for his name's sake we can begin to cultivate a desire and passion to suffer for him. Peter turns to this in verse 17 and 18. He says, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Why is it better? Why is it better to suffer for doing good Peter answers this in verse 18. It is better for, because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You see, what what Peter is saying here is that the reason we endure suffering for the sake of Christ is because when we do, we proclaim the message of the gospel to those who are persecuting us in action. It is better to suffer for doing good because that was Christ's model. He suffered for us. Jesus paid it all. And so as we suffer for Christ and we supplement that with the words of the gospel, we proclaim the very heart of the gospel, Christ's substitutionary sufferings in the place of sinners. And when those two things come together, we most potently proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It is better to suffer for doing good because Christ suffered for doing good we have been called to bless those who do evil to us. And as we do this, we are confident that the blessing of the Lord rests upon us, both the present blessing and the future blessing. We have been called to respond to persecution by honoring and setting Christ apart in our hearts as Lord. Through this, we are able to respond to our persecutors with courage and gentleness and respect, seeking their salvation. And as we faithfully do this, we most beautifully proclaim the very heart of the gospel, the sufferings of Christ for us. I wanna close with uh, just a short article. Um, Many of you are, I think this illustrates what we're talking about here. It's it's to an extreme degree, um, but still I think that it works pretty well. Many of you remember um, about 11 years ago, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, there was a, uh, a school shooting at an Amish school. Uh, a man went into the school and just began to open fire on all of these children. Um, and this article summarizes, I think, basically what we're talking about here. Um, and basically it is, in response, it is an article based on the aftermath of that shooting and the Amish's community's response to it. This is what is said. On the, day of a sh- on the day of the shooting, a grandfather of one of the murdered Amish girls was heard warning some young relatives not to hate the killer, saying, we must not think evil of this man. Another Amish father noted, he had a mother and a wife and a soul, and he's now standing before a just God. A Roberts family spokesman, the Roberts family was the man who committed this massacre, A Roberts family spokesman said an Amish neighbor comforted the Roberts family hours after the shooting and extended forgiveness to them. Amish community members visited and comforted Roberts' widow, parents, and parents-in-law. One Amish man held Roberts' sobbing father in his arms reportedly for as long as an hour to comfort him. About 30 members of the Amish community attended Robert's funeral and Maria Roberts, the widow of the killer, was one of the few outsiders invited to the funeral of one of the victims. Maria Roberts, the wife of the killer, wrote an open letter to her Amish neighbors thanking them for their forgiveness, grace, and mercy. She wrote, Your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need Gifts you've given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this, we sincerely thank you. Church, we must not forget the reason that we are here as exiles in this world. We are here to proclaim the excellencies of God And that happens very potently through suffering for him. And we do this that the unbelieving world around us might come and worship him. Pray with me. Father, thank you that Christ suffered for us. Give us willing hearts to suffer for him. Work into our hearts by the power of your spirit a desire to live publicly in light of our faith, even in the midst of persecution. Give us a heart that is ready to set you apart as Lord and respond to that persecution faithfully that the gospel might be proclaimed and that the loss might be brought in. I ask this all in your name, Lord Jesus.